Welcome to the second part of the Upper GI episode of Master the MRCS podcast. In today's episode, we will be covering peptic ulcer disease, echolasia, gastric cancer, and gastrointestinal stromal tumors. This podcast series is kindly sponsored by Bendix Academy. And then moving down the GI tract to the stomach, um, the other uh, another common pathology that we get asked about is peptic ulcer disease. Um, how, how should we be thinking about peptic ulcer disease as a as a phenomenon? How would you describe it? Um, yeah, I think I would start off by um, defining what an ulcer means, and I think this is a um, a popular question. To, um, within the exam. So an ulcer is a breach into the submucosal layer and it's different from an erosion, which is a breach in the epithelial surface layer. Um, peptic ulcer disease essentially is very much related to risk factors and lifestyle choices. Um, the risk factors associated with it include things like H. pylori, smoking, and higher medications such as NSAID steroids, um, alcohol consumption, goods, and Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. So, so t- could you tell us a little bit about H. pylori? Yes. So H. pylori is a gram-negative rot, um, which is a, also a flagellated organism. It causes increased gastrin production and therefore increased gastric acid production while also reducing mucus and bicarbonate production. Um, it has ureus enzymes, which produces ammonia from endogenous urea, creating a local buffer system against the surrounding acidic environment. And ammonia itself is also locally irritant. Okay, so multiple reasons for ulceration to form, basically. Um, and, and what kind of investigations should we be thinking about when we think about H. pylori? Um, so there are a number of investigations for H. pylori. Um, that includes a carbon-13 urea breath test, a stool antigen test, a serology test um, with the ELISA immunoassay, or um, if patients are offered OGD, a rare biopsies can be taken for the CLO test. So the CLO test is the um, Campylobacter-like organism test where you obtain tissue samples on OGD. You put it in a medium with urea and a pH re- reagent, um, which is phenol red. If H. pylori is present, then the urease within the organism will generate ammonia from urea and the pH indicator will turn red. And when we're looking at these patients who, you know, have dyspepsia or who are concerned about, we're thinking about, oh, should we be considering H. pylori? What what kind of presentation makes you think, ah, maybe I should be thinking about H. pylori? I think... H. pylori is, I would say, um, a cause of a peptic ulcer disease that you investigate for. Um, but generally, in terms of how patients with peptic ulcer may present, um, that can be either in an emergency setting um, where they present with acute complications associated with peptic ulcer disease. Um, for example, in the form of a perforated peptic ulcer disease um, where patients will 
have acute onset of very severe epigastric pain um, with evidence of peritonism sometimes uh, with some level of hypovolemic shock. Patients can also present with an upper GI bleed secondary to an ulcer um, with hematemesis and melina as their main presenting complaint. Sometimes you can get gastric outlet obstruction from the edema and scarring um, and patient may present with vomiting um, and hypochloremic metabolic alkalosis. Less acutely, patients may be referred to the outpatient clinic or present at a GP surgery with um, symptoms of um, weight loss, um, abdominal pain after eating, for example, in gastric ulcer um, and um, in duodenal ulcer abdominal pain, which is relieved by eating. Um, and sometimes patients may present with a loss of appetite. In these patients um, who have red flag symptoms and above the age of 55, the other important thing you also need to think of is whether they have more sinister pathology like cancer. And focusing in a little bit more on what you touched on, the acute setting, um, how, how would we manage a patient who presented with an acute complication uh, related to peptic ulcer? And so this is a very good question um, that is commonly asked um, at the MRCS exam. Um, and for questions like this, I like to tackle it according to the um, CRISP protocol and the initial assessment and management of the patient. So I would clinical, clinically assess the patient according to their um, E to E approach. So that's airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. Um, in this specific context, we anticipate that C, the circulation may be an area of primary concern as patients can present with hypovolemic shock. But if you're starting off with airway, if the patient is speaking to me, then I'm reassured that the airway is stable and I'll move on to the breathing. I'll have a quick um, chest auscultation, check their um, saturations, their respiratory rate, um, then moving on to C, where I'm going to focus sort of um, my area of assessment. Um, you want to check the patient's pulse and blood pressure, um, the fluid volume status. Um, at this point, you want to gain adequate venous access with two large bowl cannulas. And you want to obtain um, your series of blood tests, including full blood count, urea and electrolyte, CRP, a coagulation screen, could and safe, and anomalies. Um, you would, I would catheterize patients um, as part of my C assessment and um, fluid resuscitate them with crystalloids and blood products as indicated. Um, and then moving on to disability D, um, I would check the patient's um, just general mental state, um, check their blood sugars, Moving on to E, um, I would do a targeted um, assessment and focusing on an abdominal examination, um, checking, um, also performing a DRE examination. The investigations that I really want to consider getting um, are um, an arterial blood gas as well as a CT scan, um, often the abdomen and pelvis with contrast to um, identify whether there is any um, pneumoperitoneum or perforated viscous. And presumably keep them low by mouth at that point, um, you know, con concerned about 
whether they'll need some further intervention, either surgical or um, endoscopic. So a very important point. So yes, you would want to keep patients immune by mouth. So for example, if it's a perforated peptic ulcer disease, then the patient will need to be um, aggressively resuscitated and be taken to theatre for um, a surgical or mental patch repair. If it's a bleeding peptic ulcer, then um, an endoscopy um, would be a first line of management um, with consideration of injection, thermal or mechanical therapy to arrest bleeding. Okay. And then, and then after that, I suppose, you know, once the acute setting settled, you think later down the line about eradicating H. pylori if present. Um, is that still done with triple therapy or how do yes. we... So yes, for patients who presented with perforated peptic ulcer disease, they should be worked up for H. pylori. The treatment for H. pylori is, as you said, triple therapy, um, twice a day for a week consisting of a PPI, um, and antibiotics, including amoxicillin and clarithromycin, or metronidazole um, if the patient um, has penicillin allergy. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's a great example of, um, you know, an acute workup and how to, how to deal with a question about an acute uh, pathology, uh, and also a, a really good summary of of um, gastric disease. Um, so thank you so much. Um, thinking about other sort of common things that come up in the upper GI tracts, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about achalasia. I think there's quite a few questions usually on achalasia, especially in part one. Um, how would you define achalasia, first of all? So I think I can come across achalasia in a series of part C questions for the part B. But for part A, um, achalasia is characterized by hypertonic and abnormal or incomplete relaxation of the um, lower esophageal sphincter such that food boluses cannot pass through the stomach. Um, and in fact, on esophageal manometry, the three things that characterize the achalasia diagnosis is um, are high pressure in the lower esophageal sphincter at risk, failure of the sphincter to relax after swallowing, and an absence of useful peristaltic contractions in the lower esophagus. Okay, so that's a useful, useful distinguishing feature. It's not a complete absence of contractions. It's absence of you know rhythmic peristalsis that is functional and and. and that's, that's useful. Any other investigations that we'd use alongside manometry? Yes, so you could do a barium swallow test um, where classically you would see a bird's beak appearance. Um, if you haven't seen the picture of what it would look like on barium swallow, I think it's worth googling what it looks like just to give you sort of an idea of um, what you would expect. And sometimes they may show you a picture of a barium solid test on the part A and ask you for the diagnosis of this. Um, the other thing I would consider doing is an OGD and that's helpful to exclude other GI conditions. I think it's a useful uh, picture to look at because it does does look like a bird's beak and once you've seen it, it's, it's a good one to remember. Um, and then um, once you've done the investigations and you've uh, confirmed your diagnosis, how would you treat an um, achalasia? 
So again, um, you can divide this into non-operative management and operative management. So in terms of non-operative management, that would uh, consist of pharmacological therapy in the form of calcium channel blockers and nitrates. Um, in terms of nitrates, it's, it's a drug that has a number of side effects that includes things like um, headache and hypotension. So sometimes patients don't tolerate it very well. In terms of operative management, um, the options are endoscopic therapy, so endoscopic um, dilatation. This often requires repeated procedures, um, but is effective in up to two-thirds of um, patients. Um, you could also consider endoscopic Botox injection. In terms of surgical management, and that will be in the form of a myotomy, where you weaken the lower esophageal sphincter by cutting its muscle fibers. So obviously the risk of myotomy surgery include acid reflux, perforation, and bleeding. So because of the risk of acid reflux, some surgeons may choose to perform fundoplication within the same surgery um, to prevent the um, reflux. we talk about gastric cancer as well? Is that um, something we could explore? Yep, so gastric cancer is, um, there's a lot of different subtypes for gastric cancer, but 90% of them are adenocarcinoma, 5% are other types, so things like uh, squamous cell carcinoma, a gastrointestinal stromal tumour, so a gist, a non-Hodgkin lymphoma, a neuroendocrine tumour. So different types of gastric cancer in terms of its classifications, and there are sort of two broad classifications. That's the Lawrence classification and the WHO classification based on histology. In terms of the Lawrence classification, it can be divided into two. So that's um, intestinal or diffuse gastric cancer. So intestinal gastric cancer affects distal one-third of the stomach and it has a slower growth compared to diffuse so diffuse gastric cancer is rather aggressive, it is poorly differentiated, and in histology you would see signet ring cells, um, linus, linus plastica, which is a leathery thickened wall um, of the stomach, um, and I think the this is usually asking part A, where they may give you um, a section of a histology with um, this sort of characteristic um, features and ask you what the um, diagnosis is. Thank you. Um, and I guess in the same way as uh, peptic ulcer disease can, in the stomach can cause, you know, complications that can be really acute and concerning, is that similar with gastric cancers? Um, again, having the anatomy sort of altered in that way, causing problems? So yes, I think I think the complications are fairly similar to the ones to peptic ulcer. So patients with um, gastric cancer can present in the emergency setting with bleeding, with perforation um, of the stomach as a result of the invasion of the tumor. They can also present with symptoms of obstruction um, at the level of the gastric outlet. Thank you. Um, in terms of uh, how we investigate, again, I know that scoping is going to be very important and that's going to be how we identify a lot of malignancy. But I think we also use ultrasound um, to look at local invasion. Is that right? 
Yep. So I think fairly similar to, again, esophageal cancer, so OGD, biopsy, endoscopy, ultrasound to assess for local spread and the lymph node status, and then a staging CT. Um, um, yes. Fantastic. Um, and in terms of management, is it, uh, again, are we thinking about curative versus palliative, or is there another way of thinking about it for yeah, I think I think for the level of the MLCS exam, I like to think of it in terms of curative intent versus palliative intent. Um, the the important thing to think about um, is whether the gastric cancer is resectable or not, and you want to consider this in terms of invasion to major vessels and whether there is a widespread lymph node disease. Um, in terms of modalities of treatment that could include surgery in the form of total gastrectomy or subtotal gastrectomy, depending on the site and the size, um, and chemo-radiotherapy uh, in the context of neoadjuvant therapy, adjuvant therapy and palliative therapy. It's been excellent going through all these various upper GI conditions. Um, one that's a little bit more um, uncommon and one that we do still get a lot in the exam is um, gastrointestinal stromal tumours or GISTs. Um, it's one I've always struggled with getting my head around. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what GISTs are? So yes, uh, GIST is a very common past year question in the Part B exam and they are gastrointestinal stromal tumours. Um, and a mesenchymal in origin is thought to arise from the same lineage as interstitial cells of Cahal. Um, just tumors are caused by activating mutations in genes controlling thyrosine kinase expression. So kit 75, 80% um, of uh, just tumors are caused by um, mutation in this uh, gene it's commonly benign, about 70%, but can be malignant with hematogen spread. It commonly involves the stomach in up to 60% and small intestine up to 20 to 30%. It is very rarely extra, um, it's very rarely outside the gastrointestinal tract. We often get asked about um, histopathology. So um, what, what are the histopathology bits that we need to know as surgical trainees? So I think in terms of cell type, um, for cheese tumour, they commonly spindle cell tumours, 70%. Um, they can be epithelioid um, or mixed cell um, tumours um, in the remaining sort of 20 to 30%. In terms of immunohistochemistry-wise, cheese tumours will stain positive for KIT in 95% of uh, the time. Um, KIT is the most sensitive and specific marker of cheese tumours, but 5% of cheese tumours are KIT negative. Okay, and then um, how should we think about uh, management for GISTs then? Is that similar as before with um, curative and non-curative, or is there another way to think about it? So just tumors are mostly benign, as we said. Um, I, I think in terms of management, you can think of it in terms of its size and whether it's resectable or not. So if it's a small gist, less than two centimeters, then you can just offer a regular endoscopic um, ultrasound surveillance. Um, if it's a larger size, more than two centimeters, and uh, it depends whether it's a resectable disease or not. If it's resectable, then you could offer surgery 
um, plus minus a tyrosine kinase inhibitor as a new adjuvant or adjuvant. If it's not resectable, then you can offer a medical pharmacological therapy in the form of tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So for example, um, imatinib, sunitinib. This podcast is kindly sponsored by the Medics Academy. Please stay tuned for the next episode of the Master DMRCS podcast where we will be looking at colorectal diseases.